So Money episode 484, Kat Cole, group president of Focus Brands and president of Cinnabon. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Eager to get into investing but not sure where to start? Enter Vestly, a new stock trading game that's free to play and lets users compete for real cash prizes. You buy stocks with virtual money, so there's no risk. Learn the markets and earn points based on your portfolio. If you can make it to the top of the Vestly leaderboard by the end of the month, you'll win real money. This year, more than 450 people have won over $70,000 playing Vestly. Winners also have a chance to bring home grand prizes like the new 2017 Audi Q3, a $10,000 vacation trip voucher, or a $5,000 check. You can download the Vestly app for free today and learn more at vestlygame.com slash so money. That's V-E-S-T-L-Y-G-A-M-E dot com slash so money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for joining me. We have a very accomplished guest on the show today. She actually first caught my eye when she appeared on the Today Show not too long ago. Kat Cole is here. She's the president of Cinnabon. And at just 19 years old, she got her first job in the food industry as a hostess and waitress at none other than Hooters. And soon she was being sent all over the world to help the franchise open new eateries and quickly rose through the ranks, becoming vice president at age 26. And it was Actually, then that she became one of the youngest executives in chain restaurants. At Cinnabon, she has been president for the last four years, accountable for leading, evolving, and building the brand and her team. And after leading the company to billion-dollar status, Kat was promoted to the role of group president at Focus Brands, the parent company, to Cinnabon. Kat and I discussed the responsibilities employers have to support their workers with families via paid family leave and flexible work arrangements. What's her opinion on that? And as a woman, does Kat feel that she's somehow broken through a glass ceiling? And yes, asking for a raise, how to right size your earnings expectations, according to Kat. Here is Kat Cole. Kat Cole, welcome to So Money. I've been watching you on TV lately. You're everywhere. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. You've been on the Today Show recently, Undercover Boss. You're in a lot of magazines. You're out there more than ever. Um, What is the message that you really want to get across these days as a leader, a female leader in the business world? There are a few messages that I hope come across. One is um, that in order to drive an extreme or unusual level of success that there is this view that partnership and collaboration really are the new leadership. And I think the skills that are the things that are most important in being successful are this balance. On one side, it is uh, humility and curiosity. And on the other side is courage and confidence. And you can't let one of those sides get too far ahead of the other. Courage and confidence, which a lot of people get read blogs about and go to classes for and talk about a lot. Courage and confidence, if left untempered, can be um, come across as being a bull in a china shop and you won't have a lot of followers. 
On the other hand, humility and curiosity, if left unchecked without courage and confidence, if you're just curious and humble, you're just a student. And so having a good combination of those things, I hope when people read my story and hear my advice from my experiences, I hope that comes across loud and clear. I, I think it does. I mean, your story is very unique and it's important to share your story because I think it's incredibly inspirational. Uh, it's no secret that you started as a dropout, 19, got your first job as a hostess waitress at Hooters, parlayed that into a vice president role by 26. It seems like you've always had this je ne sais quoi for business. Like this is something that had to have been also very instinctive to you, right? I don't know. You know, it's it's hard to tell because ultimately, if you think about, well, where would instinct come from? I didn't grow up around business people. Um, I grew up around a very, you know, for a period of my life, very poor. But uh, even when we weren't at our poorest, it was still very blue collar, people working good, honest jobs, sort of middle management, you know, truckers, factory workers, secretaries, um, being what it was called back then. That was really the the work, um, working in junkyards. You know, that was the work of the people that were in my immediate family. And so it's not as if I were around uh, uh, many entrepreneurs or business thinkers or lawyers or people running companies. And so the instinctive part was to be curious and to take risks. That was the instinct. But I wouldn't say the the polish and the business acumen and the, the business thinking itself was instinctive, but it came because of the things that were instinctive. It came because of the curiosity and the willingness to help and the courage to take risks. And because of that, I both received and took a higher number of opportunities at an earlier age than most. And when you add that up, it leads to experiences, which lead to confidence, which then lead to some form of business acumen. And then eventually, even though I dropped out of uh, college to continue to open franchises around the world, I did go back and get my MBA um, and was able to round out some of the polish and business thinking and add that to my experience that only if you want to call it, only built the instinct uh, to a, a greater degree. So it was instinct, but it was informed by early uh, experiences that were, by some others' definitions, high risk, um, but also um, had a lot of leadership responsibility in them where I made a ton of my own mistakes mm -hmm. and benefited from many successes that informed what you would call my instinct and my gut that developed over time. In hearing all of this, I haven't heard the word luck, which I love because I think <laughs> sometimes, especially women, we don't give ourselves enough credit to say, you know what? I was proactive. I may have been lucky, but I created my own luck because I took risks. I took chances. I allowed myself to fail. I sought out mentors. Um, what's your take on this, this idea of luck? Uh, I, you know, I, I agree with you to a degree. I think um, luck is thrown out there as a way of deflecting uh, what someone's individual role likely was at its total highest degree. But I would say that there are certain words that you might use to describe the environment and the factors of the situation or the employer or the great people that gave you chances, whether you want, want to call it luck circumstances, the environment at the time, there is certainly a meaningful role that other people who give you chances, even if they're well-earned, nonetheless, they still gave you the chance. There is a meaningful role that those people play in, in anyone's journey. Um, the fact was that I joined a company as a waitress 
being Hooters that was in a high growth mode. I didn't choose Hooters because it was a high growth concept. I chose it because it was local and it was uh, seemed fun. And it was a way to get quick cash as a high school student and work a job that I thought was going to be temporary. What turned it out to be, if you whatever you want to call it, lucky, fortunate, good timing. The simple fact is the circumstances of that being a high growth company were a meaningful contributor to the opportunities that I received. And I was able to take advantage of those opportunities because I worked my ass off and did all the things that aren't luck. So there is some intersection of circumstances mm-hmm. and all of the great work. But to simply brush it all off as luck, I think, is removing the meaningfulness of both the, the business situation, the business climate, and your own efforts. What's your take on the glass ceiling? As a woman, now that you've been also very public about your story, I'm sure that reporters are asking you about, I mean, it's a presidential year. We have a female Mm -hmm. running for president. Women are at the forefront of a lot of our conversations, their equality, our equality. Do you feel like you've somehow broken through a glass ceiling? And and if if there was any adversity that you experienced, what was the biggest hurdle? Um, My headline on the glass ceiling topic is that in many ways, we have evidence that there is accelerating progress. Hillary Clinton being a presidential nominee is one of those examples. Um, And the number of women that you're seeing run countries around the world and even cultures where women tend to be uh, less prominent of decision maker or viewed as leaders less prominently in those cultures. So, you, you know, you look around the world, even in places like Africa and the Gulf, and you're seeing women leaders emerge everywhere. So on one hand, there is meaningful progress that is quite visible in unexpected places. On the other hand, um, there is no question that there are still gender inequalities and gender dynamics at play in many places, in many industries, at varying spots in an organization. And um, there is more awareness than ever that gender diverse teams lead to better financial results. And slowly but surely, everyone from boards to executive teams are starting to insist on more gender diversity, but it is not happening fast enough. Uh, And the reason it is being, um, the reason being pointed to is, well, the pipeline doesn't have a lot of women. Well, of course it doesn't because of all the gender dynamics that have been at play. So you have to accelerate that in some way. Um, So on one hand, there's been a lot of progress. On the other hand, there are very clear uh, gender dynamics and there is very clear gender disparity and everything ranging from pay to opportunity to percentage of leaders in key roles. So then to me, and have I broken through? Um, I think in some ways, yes. Um, but again, it's it's not just attributed to me. There is a there are a host of variables that have led to what is my equation of having been a leader in traditionally male dominated roles and male dominated fields. Part of it is my own capability, my own curiosity, my own. Um, penchant toward leadership from a very young age because I grew up in a single mother household and helped take care of my sisters. And there's a bit of sort of instinctive leadership um, in me that comes out of the difficult situations that my mother, my family were in for a period of time. Um, So I take credit for some of that. And then there were great leaders. What's interesting is most of the people I worked for at Hooters in my 15 years there, every person I worked for until I reported to the CEO was a woman. All my bosses were women. Um, So I only saw women leaders with only a few exceptions. And 
that gave me great confidence in the understanding of the many ways women can show up in leadership positions. And that surprises most people because it was Hooters, but it's absolutely true. And I got engaged in the Women's Food Service Forum, which is literally a women's leadership development organization for this industry. And that gave me more training and competence. And so it didn't just come because I figured something out on my own in a bubble. It's a it's a, you know, a, a wicked brew, a, a bit of a recipe of a bit of my own leadership style, incredible leaders, mainly women in the early stages. And then the, the men, all the CEOs I've worked for have been men um, and other leaders that I've worked with that were quite honestly, incredibly progressive and open and just wanted the best talent. And they viewed me as the best talent, regardless of my gender. And what's funny is my gender was not the most unique thing about me mm. in many of these roles. I was the youngest by 10, 15, 20 years. I had the least technical experience. So the leaders that I've worked for, the private equity firms and the CEOs have taken far bigger chances than just the fact that I'm a chick. They have taken chances considering I was less experienced and was far younger and age is just a number, but it also is an indicator of experience, number of years in an industry. And so clearly I have chosen companies that have had leaders that saw in me raw potential and ability, despite not my gender, despite other things that set me apart from mm -hmm. other candidates. So those are major contributors to me breaking through, if you will, um, the glass ceiling. And so I think you know, there are clearly multiple stakeholders in shattering glass ceilings in multiple industries. There are companies, their boards, their CEOs, and their funding mechanisms, their private equity firms, their um, their governance and nominating committees, what, whatever it is. Um, so that group plays a role. And then there are the individuals like me that must show up, step up, speak up, take accountability for their own learning, work their asses off despite not having the informal networks that many male candidates would. Um, so that's a big piece. And then there's just this sort of um, engine that is society, government, media, uh, having the conversations around the importance and power of gender diversity and the fact that if you really want the best talent, you need to not rule out 50% of the workforce. Um, those three things have to work in concert. And I think in my situation, you see that optimized. We just see, need to see it more consistently optimized in many more scenarios. If you took one part of that pie of that equation, which is employers, they, they play a role in, in making sure that the, the mm -hmm. playing field is leveled. What responsibility do you think that employers have to be supportive of not just women, but families? Because that's another big issue right now to make sure that, that they can have the flexibility that they, that they need, that they can have the paid family leave that they need in order mm -hmm. to be able to be more productive at work. What's your philosophy on that? I think employers, just as with any issue, need to look at, one, what matters most to their employees. And if this is a growing issue, you have to put it on the table. And it is. It's always been an issue, but it's becoming an issue where more people have examples of uh, progressive companies doing really great things. And so the question is, why can't every company do great things? Uh, so if it's becoming more meaningful and being more vocalized by existing employees and potential candidates, then if you want to be the employer of choice – then you have to do the things that are attractive to your prospects and your employees. That's pretty basic. It's a very capitalist-driven argument. Um, second, then employers need to look at what is minimally just – there are some employers that still don't even have things that are minimally 
acceptable or expected, you know, um, paternal leave in some way, even if it's a couple weeks, some type of paternal leave that if women are more progressively taking leadership roles, guess what? Then that means that men are being relied upon for more roles at home. And so policies need to reflect that. Um, I would say more broadly, companies have to evaluate their business model to decide where there are elements of flexibility in certain jobs. Not every job can be done from home. I grew up working in restaurants and in retail. You need somebody to bring the food. You need somebody to sell the food. You can't just have a work from home day. Somebody's got to cover that work. So there are some roles that can't simply have that level of do your job from home. However, you can have a level of um, shift formulation or staffing approach that gives more flexibility to even those jobs where someone must be in person. So that's the second responsibility is to evaluate the work, evaluate the workflow, determine where technology can enable a more flexible environment or more project-placed work, um, which is becoming much more the future of work, very um, on-demand work, project-centric, free agent type of a work. Where can you move to that model where it might liberate multiple employees to live their best life personally, whether it's family or not, um, and still do amazing work for the organization? So those two things, sort of understanding what's important to your employees as it relates to family policy and making sure that you're delivering that if you want to be attractive as an employer. So that's about policy and leave and um, everything from childcare or whatever it is you provide in terms of benefits that allow someone to both work and be uh, be their best selves outside of work. Again, it shouldn't be left exclusively to family. It's just about being your best self outside of work. Um, and, and a large part of that is, is family and leave policies. And then there's the how does the work get done? And that's more complex. It's hard for you or I to tell any company whether or not their jobs can be flexible, but they have a responsibility if they want to be the employer of choice to evaluate their work and their jobs and be progressive and open to looking at technologies that could not just make work more flexible, but probably less expensive. Um, And if you move to more contract and project-based work, you're also not taking on the liability of these larger full-time employee roles. So there's, there's, actually an advantage to a company um, in going to that structure. So I think those are the two key responsibilities. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 84 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer-made, customizable templates to choose from. The drag-and-drop editor. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy. Too busy. Too busy worrying about your budget. Too busy scheduling appointments. Too busy busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your website today. The result is stunning. On a personal level, you have talked a lot about your upbringing and how that's influenced you. You mentioned it earlier as well in our conversation that your mother was a guiding force. I read that as a single parent and multiple children, you guys had a food budget of $10 a week mm-hmm. for, for several years. Ye- for three yep. years. First of all, what did you eat? And <laughs> what was the biggest uh, life lesson that your mother taught you? 
Um, we ate some scary stuff. I mean, spam, <laughs> spam. potted meat, you know, <laughs> a lot of potted meat. I don't I mean, you read the things that are in that and it's a little scary things that probably wouldn't pass the, um, the sophisticated mom's test today, but, uh, you know, she just made it work. She'd go to the butcher and get scraps. We'd eat a lot of, um, bulk prepared meals. I mean, we just figured it out, beanie weenies and sloppy joes and things that are just economical. Um, and so, so we figured it out and more importantly, she figured out how to do it. Um, I would say that the, the guiding light and the lesson that I got from my mom is this concept of you can figure almost anything out and make it happen. And it's a little bit of what, when I talk about this concept of hustle muscle, I have this hashtag that I created called hashtag hustle muscle. And I always tell people that it's funny that you see all these entrepreneurial blogs and motivational speakers say, say yes before you're ready. By the way, I believe in that. I clearly have demonstrated a penchant for doing that my entire life. But what they often don't talk about is when you say yes before you're ready, then you actually have to have, that's where I call it the hustle muscle. You actually have to have the hustle, the hustle muscle to close the gap between what you need that you don't have and what must be executed in order to successfully deliver what you just said yes to. And that doesn't get talked about enough. And that's what I saw from my mom is she would just say, yep, she, I mean, she said, I'm leaving, I'm leaving your father and I don't know how I'm going to do it. I got three kids. I have a job that doesn't pay much but I'm going to figure it out. And she did the hard work to figure it out. I said yes to go to Australia when I was 19 before. Um, I had never been on a plane. I certainly therefore had not been out of the country. I did not have a passport, but then I did all the work in a short period of time to get a passport, uh, take my first flight, go get a passport, do research on what I needed to do. And then when I got there, did all the homework that I needed to, to be the best I could be. And so I learned from my mom, you need to say yes to things you just believe in, even if you're not ready. But then you have to actually do the hard work so things don't fall apart after you've said yes. That's a lot of confidence. And we know that there have been books and there are lecture series on women and how we have this confidence gap. We know that women won't even apply for jobs Mm -hmm. unless they feel they fulfill 100% of the job criteria. Men, as long as they feel like they're halfway there, Mm -hmm. they'll apply. So this is, I think very unique to women. And um, Mm -hmm. it's a life lesson that is such a gift to have learned at at a young age. That's right. Absolutely. I completely believe in that. Do you think that it's easier to be someone working for a billion-dollar brand on the inside as a leader or to be an entrepreneur? I I don't think you could say either are easier. I mean, I am involved in both. I run big corporate companies and I help others start their companies and I invest in founders and startups and I'm a part of a VC that invests in startups and um, I've started my own things over the years and you can't say either are easier. You know, the it's, and it's interesting when you get big corporate leaders together with entrepreneurs, uh, people who are in the early stage of founding companies because the early stage founders think there are all these things that big corporate leaders have so much easier and they get to talking to them and you realize you have the same dynamics in many cases that you have to deal with. And big corporate leaders think that founders uh, and startups, especially tech centric, you know, very sexy and appealing have all of these advantages and you talk to them and you realize they have a ton of similar challenges. So one is definitely not easier um, than the other. Uh, I would say that being an entrepreneur and starting something from scratch brings with it a level of risk and pressure that shows up in different ways 
in the corporate world. It's not that it's necessarily more, it can just show up more intensely in certain ways than being uh, a corporate executive. On one hand, when you're small and you're starting, you're working your ass off, you're taking all the risk, all the burdens on you. But ultimately, if it fails, especially in its early stage, you're not letting hundreds and thousands of people down. On the corporate side, when you have that responsibility and you make the wrong decision, you make fewer decisions as a corporate executive than as a founder. Because as a founder in the early stage, you got your hands in everything. Right. You make fewer decisions as a big company corporate executive, but the few that you make are mission critical to the company and can take it down an amazing path or a horrible path. And hundreds, thousands, or even tens of thousands, in many of our cases, jobs are on the line if it goes down a bad path. So it's just different. One of the very first things you mentioned on the show was this important concept of collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of how you took Cinnabon to billion dollar status, right? You discovered that what the customers really, some of them really wanted was just sort of this taste, mm-hmm. this in this smaller experience with the Cinnabon flavor. And now you've brought that flavor and you've married it with other brands across various food platforms. Um, so is do you take all the credit for that? I mean, how did that come about? Yeah, the brand has been in collaborations, co-branding and licensing long before I came on board. The Pillsbury relationship with Cinnabon, every single Pillsbury cinnamon roll in grocery stores is made with Cinnabon cinnamon and is a Cinnabon co-branded product. That's been going on for 11 years. And I've only been with Cinnabon and Focus Brands for six. So it, it happened long before me. Smart people realized that this brand had latent equity and that there was demand in other occasions and that it made sense to match the demand with the brand equity through strategic partnerships. What I did when I came on board was make that a much more central part of the way we viewed the brand, how we structured the business, and how we grew those partnerships and leveraged it to build the company in all channels. And the team that we built had launched some amazing things since then that have been since I took over the brand and they have grown it and done an amazing job. The Cinnabon um, Keurig Green Mountain K-Cup. So it's literally cinnamon roll flavored coffee. It's their, depending on the month, it's their number three or number five uh, flavor, which is fantastic. The International Delight Coffee Creamer, the Cinnabon Vodka, the Cinnabon Creme Liqueur, the Wise Popcorn, Cinnabon products that are being sold in grocery stores now and bakeries, these cupcakes and cookies and all kinds of really amazing things that, to your point, bring a taste of Cinnabon, but to an occasion and a a purchasing point that is very different from our malls and airports and our immediate consumption, fresh bakery, world famous giant cinnamon roll occasion. It's my hardest temptation at the airport. (laughs) And I I have yet to ever finish an entire Cinnabon. I think I would go through like uh, just a a period of shame and um, sadness. Like I (laughs) can't, you know, that's the difference they say between like American eaters and French eaters, right? Like we just, we, 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 there's be a lot of guilt associated with that consumption, but um, brilliant, I guess that you guys figured out a way to make everybody uh, a little happy. Um, what would you say is your financial philosophy, Kat? You know, this show is all about money, personal finance, how we mm-hmm. see the world through the lens of dollars and cents. What would you say is your is your number one money mantra? I think my number one money mantra is um, I actually have a money clip that has this quote on it, which is so worth it. Um, and it started out as a mantra we used for Cinnabon and Auntie Anne's. We have six brands now that I lead the global channels group oh for God, the Auntie company Anne's for all too? six brands. Oh, Lord. Yeah. 
and Carvel and Moe's. How do you stay so thin? (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I indulge a lot, but then when I'm not indulging, I eat super healthy. And I think that actually is connected to my money philosophy, this concept of so worth it. So with Cinnabon and Auntie Anne's, we know that we're an indulgence brand. It is not meant to be breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, And so if you're going to invest a lot of calories in a treat, and certainly if you're going to invest your discretionary income in something that's not a necessity, it had better be worth it. And that was my philosophy with Cinnabon. It's my philosophy across all of our brands as we bring their products to retail and other channels, which is... If you're going to invest anything, time, money, energy, calories, it had better be worth whatever that investment is. And so in the case of Cinnabon, um, that's a really high calorie, high fat, high sugar treat. Even if you eat the little ones, it's little, but there's still, as a percentage, all the things that are bad are high. It's Now it's made with real ingredients, real sugar, all that. So there's that going for it. But nonetheless, it's sugar. And it's fat and it's flour. <laughs> like, let's be serious. So if you're going to do that, it had better be so delicious that that little divergence where you're not making the healthiest of choices. So I would say it's good for your, it may not be good for your butt, but it's good for your soul. That <laughs> Once on the lips, that, forever on the hips, as they yeah, say. Yeah. So if you're going to make that decision, it had better give you something in return. Great pleasure. The same is true with how I view money. That if I'm going to invest in something, whether that's invest in a piece of clothing, my rent, um, a car, I actually don't have a car, I gave that up. Um, but if I'm going to invest in something and experience, what am I getting in return? And is that the highest and best use of that dollar? And what that leads me to personally is being incredibly conservative in my ongoing living expenses, my fixed costs, as well as my indulgence expenses and to focus on things that are more experiential, time with my friends, time with my fiance, time traveling um, in terms of where I spend, and then minimizing my expenses. I live very modestly um, in a simple little one-bedroom, funky industrial loft. My fiance and I have a little tiny place in New York and a little tiny place in Atlanta between the two of us. Um, And we don't have cars and keep it really conservative. And then invest where we can. And I like to invest in companies. I like to invest in founders. So I don't play the equity markets in a big way. Um, I I really don't get a lot into um, financial engineering. I have a little bit of your more traditional investments. I like to invest in people. Mm -hmm. I like to be high touch. I like to be close. I like to know what's going on. And so I invest directly in startups and founders and consumer businesses where I understand how it works and a little bit through some VCs. And then I focus on areas of passive income or or alternative revenues. It may be speaking, it may be writing, it may be using my experience for other things that both help people and help build a revenue stream. And then I use a lot of that to funnel into my philanthropic work, um, my humanitarian work around the world with the United Nations and uh, foundation and, and other groups. And so that, I think that's a good holistic picture of my beliefs. It's all rooted though in what is so worth it. And every quarter, I try to reconcile, are my values and the things that are important to me matching with how I spend my time and my money? And if not, I need to make a change. Mm-hmm. When it comes to earning money, what would be your advice to women who are seeking to make more at work? And how have you maybe done that for yourself? One, I would say balance aspiration with reality. I have some women come to me and say, I should be making more. And they tell me the number and I might 
happen to know a little bit about the industry or the role. And they're so way out of whack. They're so delusional. Like you, you haven't even done your homework to understand what makes sense for the work you're doing. So sometimes my advice is right size your expectations for the work that you do. If you're doing a job where best case in the market is 60000 a year and you believe you deserve eighty, then go get a job that's market value is eighty, or go get a second job, drive a car on the side, go do consulting on the side. There's many ways to get to the number you need, but sometimes individuals wrongly place a job that in its best case for market only pays X and they believe they deserve X plus. Sometimes you have to go get the plus from somewhere else. Mm. And that's tough love for me. But there are situations where women uh, haven't asked for what they deserve. They haven't advocated for themselves and they haven't done their homework to understand the benchmarks that could serve them well in being paid what they are deserved in a single role. And so you've got to work for it. You've got to ask for it. And, but do it in a way that is tied to the value you create, the quality of your work and where you are on a continuum. A job may be uh, worth, let's say, paying $100,000 for someone that has X experience and Y capabilities. Well, maybe you're early in the curve and you're only at the 80, you're at the bottom of that range for your capabilities, for the type of work that you do, which means the company has to supplement what you don't have. So you either get the skills and accelerate your development uh, or you move naturally along the curve of development until you get to the upper range of that job. What's a habit that you practice, Kat, that helps you manage your money? I think it's that reconciliation process that I mentioned. You know, on a quarterly basis, I take a look at um, how am I spending my time and my money? And is that reflective of what I say is most important to me? And if one of the things that's most important to me is building a nest egg, um, a security line, having enough cash reserves to then go take a year off at some point in the future or to be able to provide savings and college funds for my relatives, then am I saving at the rate that would create that meaningfully? Um, looking at everything from credit to expenses, you know, the basic things. Uh, but those are things that people would be surprised. I got promoted. I was pretty high level, very young and incredibly unsophisticated in my personal finances. I was great at managing a business and horrible at managing my personal finances because I moved up so quickly. I, I really didn't get taught how to manage money and how to, how to think about it properly. It took years of sort of listening to experts and making mistakes and missing opportunities that could build wealth over time to help me see, oh, I need to be more thoughtful about this. So it's the quarterly, my, what's the top line and what's going out? And then is that lined up with the goals that I have? What was your biggest mistake? Um, I mean, pretty basic shit. You know, when I was, I came out of being a waitress and got promoted to corporate at the age of 20. I didn't have a credit card. I'd always been in a cash business. When you work as a waitress and, or you're in a cash business, if you need more money, all you have to do is pick up another shift. <laughs> it's a very different mentality when you're being paid on a paycheck in the corporate world. And so that was my biggest mistake was I sort of kept the mentality that I can always just go pick up a shift and yet I kept spending money at that rate. I would travel or I would buy dinner for my friends. I would, you know, do things that really don't play out well when you only make a fixed amount. Not to mention I took a huge pay cut to take a corporate job when I was 20. So I was making less and I was being paid in a paycheck and didn't have the ability to just go pick up a shift and make another 100 bucks or 200 bucks from working a long shift. And I got into debt because of it. 
And I, then I got credit cards and that felt like the solution. And then I got into more debt and had to clean all that up and act like I get my big girl pants on <laughs> and face the music and get payment plans and get smart about my money. So that was really the biggest mistake was being just so unsophisticated around credit and savings and the shift from going from a teenager in a cash business to having to act like a much more seasoned adult in a corporate world. Your journey is one that maybe we would hear from somebody who is like about to retire, like to get to where you are in the corporate world. Um, where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? I'm sure you have goals. Um, what's something that you'd like to accomplish professionally for yourself in the next 10 years? Yeah, I think for me, it's just about continuing to help people realize they're capable of more than they know and having an impact. And what that looks like today is running big corporate businesses, investing in startups and with VCs, both as an angel investor and as in a VC capacity, um, advising founders and being on boards where I can really shape leadership and help people think about things differently using my experience. And I hope that just continues. And I hope I can leverage that into doing more humanitarian work, having an impact on countries and sort of general societal beliefs. So there's not a specific thing. You know, I've was an executive very young. I've been a president a couple times, um, very involved in startups. And I have my own business where I advise and consult. And so all of that is amazing. I hope it continues, but I want to have a larger and larger impact over time. Well, Kat, thanks so much for sharing your story. It's just begun. Congratulations so far and uh, wishing you continued success. Great. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. To learn more about Kat, her website is catcole.net and she's on Twitter at catcoleatl. All this, including the transcript and audio available at somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, send me your questions for the Friday episodes. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money. 